All this for an oversized crocodile? Hello and welcome to Exploding Helicopter, a radioactive monstrosity of a podcast that's now ready to destroy the world. Now during the 1950s, cinema goers just couldn't get enough of the sight of mutant monsters destroying American cities. Barely a week went by without some radioactive, scaly monstrosity laying waste to yet another bustling metropolis. It was the age of the creature feature. But after San Francisco was mangled by a giant octopus in It Came From Beneath the Sea, Los Angeles invaded by supersized ants in Them, and New York reduced to rubble in The Beast From 20,000 Fathoms, movie makers found themselves with an awkward problem. Having effectively demolished the United States, there was nowhere left for their boisterous, building-bothering beasts to run amok. Then someone had a bright idea. Why not shift the action across the Atlantic and have their latest atomic doom-monger destroy London instead? And so was born the film we're reviewing on this show, 1959's Behemoth the Sea Monster. To help me review the film, I'm joined by a living, breathing example of science gone horribly wrong. With me once again is Nick Rehack from French Day Sunday. How you doing, Nick? I'm doing great, Well, How are you? I'm very good, thanks. I'm very good. good. Uh, I'm glad to see that you have uh, staggered out of the laboratory and that you're here ready to uh, mumble vaguely coherently into the microphone on my behalf. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I was kind of excited when you introduced this film to me. I'd never heard of it before, and immediately I was like, "Yes, let's do this." Well, I can uh, I can guess what part of your excitement was because uh, this is a very special show because we are going to be reviewing a very historic movie, and the reason for that is the fact that this movie is the first film to feature an exploding helicopter. So, Nick. You are a witness to history here. I hope you feel the weight of uh, that responsibility with this review today. I do a little bit. And as you mentioned that, my hands got a little sweaty. I got a little nervous. I feel like you and I have, all, have looked at historical explosions before, too, especially when we watched Wings of the Apache and we saw like all, you know, the digital explosions and just the number of explosions there. So to see an original one, I it was really, really cool watching it. Yeah, we are going back to the very earliest example of the uh, exploding helicopter art here. So, yeah, this is history as we live and breathe, although 60 years on, I guess, from uh, when that uh, <laughs> when that history is made. But, uh, yeah, it obviously falls into that category of movies uh, known as uh, creature features. And, uh, yeah, I wondered how many of those type of films that you have seen, obviously they sort of came about in the 50s as part of the atomic age so i wondered yeah how many have you know have you seen some of those original movies from that uh, era the only ones i've seen are uh, was the original the blob and some of the early early godzilla films uh, king kong as well just really the standards my grandmother has a lot of the other ones like them and arachnophobia i know arachnophobia is a little bit later but of that style I never got into them, but I find myself, as I'm getting older, drawn more to them. So I'm hoping this year, next year, I start to get more into the classic types of cinema, one of them being the creature feature. Okay. Well, as you've yet to sort of dip your toe into, uh, I guess, the original source of these movies, uh, what about the what about modern day monster movies? Uh, you know, the ones that have come out in the the last sort of 10, 15 years. And I guess there's been a sort of resurgence in these type of movies of those sort of more modern day monster movies. Which ones you know, do you particularly like? 
Um, I really dug Cloverfield when that came out. I thought it was an interesting twist, kind of like a POV uh, mm. as they go through a city being destroyed. And uh, spoilers, we don't really see uh, the creature, if you will, until like the very end or towards the end of the film. We get little hints here and there. The most recent Godzilla film in 2014, the Gareth Edwards one, I really, really dug that. I'm very excited for King of the Monsters later this year. And and it's weird, too, because you see people when they go to these films and they criticize it for, oh, you know, you barely got to see the monster at all. And, you know, the, it, it's I'm disappointed or I didn't get to see it enough. As a kid growing up and seeing all the old like Toho Godzilla films, I knew what to expect. I know what to expect. I know that they tease you throughout the film. And then finally, the last 20 or so minutes in all of its glory, you get to see this monster and then the film just kind of ends. So I kind of know how it works. So when I see these films, if anything, I'm just excited to see how can they improve on it? How can they make it that much more exciting? And I feel like those three films have and will do that. Okay, I think it's time that we get stuck into the monster movie that we are going to be talking about today. So uh, let's, uh, let's cue the orchestra and see if the string section can give us something dramatic. Gentlemen, we are witnessing a biological chain reaction. A geometrical progression of deadly menace. Look there. Two points off the port bow. find a way of destroying this creature in one piece. Judging by the beast's size, I would say it was powerful enough to drive a battleship. Of course, its tremendous electric charge is what projects the radiation. That's what makes a creature so deadly. Well, have you any concrete suggestions? Yes. First, block off the Thames. When thousands of dead fish mysteriously wash up on the beach of a Cornish fishing village, two plucky scientists are sent to investigate. At first, they can find no logical explanation, but after encountering further strange events, the boffins finally learn that a giant radioactive dinosaur is on the loose. What's worse, it appears that the skyscraper-sized horror, like many a naive newcomer to these shores, has decided London is absolutely the place to be, and starts to head towards the big smoke. With London facing imminent destruction, it now falls to our scientific heroes to stop the radioactive menace. Heading up the cast is Andre Morel, who often played doctors, clergymen or military types in the 50s, uh, perhaps most famously in Bridge Over the River Kwai. Alongside him is American screen tough Gene Evans. He spent most of his career in war movies and westerns, but here he is unconventionally cast as a scientist. The other cast member is obviously the titular monster. It's probably worthwhile giving you a brief idea of what they look like. He, or perhaps she, looks a bit like a uh, Diplodocus dinosaur, so it has a long body and a long neck on which um, it has a small head. Uh, it appears to emit some kind of radioactive force which it can use to destroy things. 
if my description is a bit vague, that's because the film never really clarifies quite what power this beast has or, or how it works. The film is credited to a couple of directors, Britain's Douglas Hickok, who directed the excellent 70s thriller Sitting Target with uh, Oliver Reed. Uh, he also did the John Wayne in London cop movie Brannigan and the bizarre James Coburn hang-gliding thriller Skyriders. The other credit belongs to Eugene Lowry, who in a diverse career worked a lot with uh, Jean Renoir and Sam Fuller as an art director before branching out in the 50s with a career directing monster movies, including Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, The Colossus of New York and Gorgo. Behemoth the Sea Monster, or The Giant Behemoth, as it is also called, has a 5.8 rating on IMDb and a 30% audience rating on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, well, I think that's kind of enough of what other people think. So, Nick, what did you think of The Giant Behemoth? I enjoyed it. Um, it wasn't – I didn't hate it. I didn't love it. I was kind of in the middle but definitely leaning a little more towards enjoy. I think with a film like this, you just have to understand, hey, we're seeing a creature feature from the 50s. Expectations aren't lowered, but they just begin, become a little more realistic. Uh, and I really dug it. There's I know, a weird nostalgia feeling as I watched it. It's a very lean film, um, so it just kind of gets right to the point. There's not a lot of excess or feel like I'm wasting my time or overacting, anything like that. I It was it was quite enjoyable, and it was actually a film that I wouldn't mind seeing again, maybe do a double feature of this and another one of its time or like this and Godzilla to kind of compare the two. So I uh, I dug it. I dug it a lot. Well, I've watched this film three times now, and I probably, on my first watch, I probably had a very similar take to yours. I actually really enjoyed this movie. I think you do have to take into account the, the era in which it's made. So, mm -hmm. obviously, the special effects are not great, and this is essentially a B-movie, so there's not a lot of money going in, into those special effects. But, you know, I really enjoyed this movie, because here you've got a classic 50s creature feature which for me as somebody who's british you know here's one that's actually set in london you know or in britain in my in my you know in my own country so it was it definitely earned extra points from me from the fact that here i was seeing a kind of classic 50s genre movie you know set in my own country so seeing that type of movie but with classic british stereotypes so it was a really enjoyable watch but um having watched it a few more times i have to say that this film it's it's kind of sadly it's going down a little bit in my estimation because the the more times that i've watched it the more that i see the the problems come a bit more to the the fore with this movie and mm. there you know we we'll probably get into this a little bit later but I, it, this this seems to be a movie that it never misses up an opportunity to diffuse tension and it, i i feel that uh, quite a lot of this actually lacks a lot of drama and there's there's quite a few boring stretches in this uh, in this particular movie and uh, yeah it's as i say as someone who has now watched this three times this is a film that yeah is sadly declining a bit in my estimation i can see that um when i think about to certain scenes like when the scientists first arrive at the beach and they're talking to some of the fishermen at the docks and you can tell that they want to try to make it light but as soon as it gets serious it's okay now we're in it but then, it, like you said, diffuses itself rather quickly, and it can be disappointing at times. So maybe the more I watch it, I'll, the honeymoon phase will kind of wear off. But uh, <laughs> at this time, like I, I, I can dig it. I can uh, appreciate it for what it is. 
Well, I'm I'm not going to knock you for that because I I'm at a different point in my journey with this film, and uh, maybe you will arrive at the same uh, destination that I've got to with this. But um, as someone who's watched this a few times now, I do think that this film lacks a bit of drama and lacks a bit of jeopardy. And just to sort of drill into that a little bit, I I think at the beginning of this movie, we we meet these two scientists. They hear about the goings-on, these mysterious goings-on down in Cornwall, and they just sort of amble down there. There's no there's no ticking clock which they are up against. You, you, you wish that they had been forcibly paired up together. There was somebody in government who said, look, we've got these, you know, reports going on down in the southwest. You know, people are down there saying, oh... You know, there's all this kind of crazy stuff going on with the fish dying on the beaches. You know, there's a panic down there. You need to go down there and you need to put a wet blanket over this fire. I don't want to hear any more of this panic stuff. And you want them to be tasked with basically going down there to pacify the public. And then they find out the true nature of this thing. And then they've got to convince their bosses that actually, oh, you know what? It's not, you know, it's not something that we can put a lid on. Actually, this is a, you know, major crisis for the country. And, you know, their bosses go, ah, you know, I didn't want you to go down there and and I just wanted you to go down there and put a lid on this thing. I didn't want you to come back with these, you know, even wilder stories about what the hell's going on down there. That would have added a bit of, a bit of drama, a bit of tension, but, you know, they just decide to, they just unilaterally decide to pair up. They amble on down to Cornwall. They just do a bit of investigation. Then they kind of go back to their lab and do some tests and they go, hmm, this is, this is not very, this is not very good. It just, it just sort of lacks any sort of drama. It lacks jeopardy. I don't know. I don't know if I'm shaking you out of your honeymoon with this movie now. I think you are starting to shake me a little bit, especially with where the film could have went. Like I love that idea and I would definitely see that in a heartbeat. But I have to agree with you too that they do just kind of ho-hum their way into it. It's They get together and like, hey, do you want to look at this thing? Oh, yeah, I do. And along the way, <laughs> there's a bit of backlash. There's They get from some of the people like, oh, it's not a big deal. Don't worry about it. Even even like one or two of the fishermen like, um, it, maybe it'll be fine. Who knows? It, it, when they get to um, further on in the film and they're and they're talking about uh, potentially you know shutting down the Thames and evacuating, they're like, we don't need to do that. They just kind of pass it off every time. There's no, like you said, weight or severity. So we're just kind of like, oh, maybe maybe it's not so bad. And then, of course, you know, the monster pops up and you're like, well, I don't know, maybe. <laughs> yeah, and I think in addition to that, they also fail to really establish the stakes in this movie. Because I, I, I don't know what you think. For me, I don't really feel that they establish the behemoth or the monster as a real sort of unstoppable force i mean sure it causes these fish to die it uh smashes up a couple of boats and it sort of stomps around a bit but it doesn't really ever feel like that this is a an unstoppable monster it doesn't really feel that it, it couldn't be stopped by you know a concerted effort by the army or anything as i say it just doesn't feel like they quite really established this as a threat to the entire nation that you know and that conventional conventional forces will be you know will find it impossible to stop yeah, and at times it just feels like it's more of an annoyance than it is an actual <laughs> threat. It's you know, like he he's glowing a lot, like it's really bright out because of him. Well, lads, we better put our sunglasses on. Or I can't get to sleep. <laughs> yeah. And there's even times, like you said, he's not really flushed out. There's times where all of a sudden these like 
pulses are coming off of him and i'm like i don't know what he's doing what this means there's no like when godzilla when his scales start to glow up his back and he you know the radiation fire you're like okay well clearly we know what he's doing but Mm. with this one he's just gonna like flash you a couple times and then all of a sudden you have burns like that doesn't really process it and explain it the whole way through like i wish they would um so it does leave a bit to be desired but it's still uh, and i'd say this uh terrifying in a way it's still a terrifying enough monster to like scare you from its physicality but when it comes to its more i guess supernatural abilities it leaves me confused and uh, and wondering i guess from a realistic standpoint how like what would cause it to do that and how come it has those abilities Mm. etc etc well i mean you 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 touch on another i think flaw of this movie which is that it doesn't really explain what this monster is or why it exists i mean in some of these other monster movies you know so for instance something like them which is all about these giant ants the idea of that movie is that atomic experiments have created these you know super ants that are now you know running amok and in this movie you just have this monster which it's we're kind it's there's kind of an explanation as to what it is it's meant to be some sort of dinosaur but like the dinosaurs died out so what has led to this beast suddenly reappearing that is never explained it there is some suggestion that it is tied into basically nuclear weapons testing but it's never really you know it you know that's kind of there as background it's never really explained well how you know how did those nuclear tests arrive at the sudden reappearance of this dinosaur it's never really explained and you know i think that really ends up hurting the film because it then doesn't feel like a a real or realistic threat yeah and in even then when you try to think of like as you piece it together yourself maybe kind of create it for yourself like oh okay maybe it's like an offshoot of like a like a Loch Ness monster kind of thing maybe but and I don't want to get into it yet I figure we can wait until we get to talk about the ending I think there's something to be said about how the film ends that could explain why we don't get a full explanation of like what's going on well let's uh have a look at the double act which is at the heart of this film so you know the two heroes of this this movie are these two scientists one British one American who you know are put together to basically solve the mystery of what on earth is going on down in in Cornwall and then ultimately come up with a solution for for defeating the beast I mean what did you make of those two characters you know did you you know did they I mean I for myself I'm gonna I'm just gonna stick it out there for me they those two as leads in this film were a bit of a damp squib it didn't feel to me that there was a particular spark between them there was no friction uh, you know, there was just there was kind of just nothing going on. I'd have to agree. They were just too agreeable. They were like, <laughs> "We should do this thing." Yeah, you're right. That's a good idea. Oh, thank you. Not saying that that's not a bad thing, but you could make it a little more interesting. There could be, mm. you know, a, a, a funny disconnect between the two. Like, you know, yeah. oh, you guys say this in England, we say this over in America. <laughs> just something, something to keep just the something excitement yeah instead they're just like i think this that's a great idea oh that's wonderful good yeah because in in our you know in an everyday working environment their relationship is absolutely perfect you know i don't want unnecessary i don't want unnecessary conflict i don't want unnecessary friction but in a movie it's meant to be dramatic it's you know it's meant to be exciting it's meant to be tense and their their as you say their agreeable uh relationship just doesn't 
add anything to the mix here you know it would have been it would have been good if one of them was like a skeptic and one of them was a believer and then you know you have that conflict between sort of one of them needing to be persuaded that actually there was a radioactive dinosaur behind all these mysterious events and then okay at some point in the you know at at some point in the movie he comes on board and goes you know what you're right you're absolutely right you've been right all along and then okay now we're going to kind of join forces team up and we're going to defeat this thing you know that that you know those kind of classic plot structures are just completely avoided by this film and I, i you know i'm quite happy for films to to take new uh you know to give new and innovative and fresh spins on on kind of classic genre tropes but if you're going to avoid them and just have people working together amicably then you know you're not really engaging me as uh somebody as a viewer yeah, exactly. Now they can work together and amicably, like you said, towards the end of the film when one finally clicks and they're like, yes, you were right, and then they go for it. But I need something a little more leading up to that. Well, let's have a look at, this, at the sort of special effects in this movie. And, uh, you know, what did you think of the, the monster? And, and what did you think of the, the havoc, it, havoc it wreaks? Because this is a creature feature. It's all about the building, trampling terror that these beasts can unleash. So, yeah, did, uh, did this film deliver on that front for you? For the type of creature it was, uh, I think it was serviceable. Um, I feel like it's the nicest way to say it. I tend to go for more of a, uh, hey, that's a man in a suit, but I'm okay with it type of uh, creature destruction. <laughs> but this one I feel like was a combination of, all right, we got like a puppet on a string, and let's also throw some stop motion in there too. And and they make it work, but I wish there was a little more destruction mm. to it or at least a little more – I don't know. Just it, it felt like it was missing just a little something. I mean, it was neat to look at, and you can definitely see they took some time with the creature, especially with like you know the textures and everything, and and piecing it together. But I just I at times felt like either we're not getting the full, or we're just missing it completely. Yes, and uh, it's maybe it's because I've watched this film uh, a couple more times than you. I'm I'm sort of on this particular viewing. I was really picking up on on the limitations of the of the monster in this particular film. And as you say, the, it's it's a classic sort of stop motion beast. But what I was really detecting on this on this film, and I think it's maybe why this film has two directors because i think that um you know i i suspect that this film was a sort of division of labor between douglas hickok who was directing the bulk of this movie and that eugene lowry who'd worked on these other monster movies i think he was probably brought in to direct the scenes involving the the creature and especially as i say especially on this particular viewing i was really noticing that the scenes with the monster they almost feel like independently done and then spliced into you know scenes that were sort of set on location in british streets and the the kind of the lack of integration between the kind of scenes with the monster and the the scenes with the actors really started as i say on this viewing to to show up for me and I feel that that really sort of hurts the the sort of the the drama of the of the kind of building smashing that we all we all know and love from these movies and that we want to get. Absolutely, and I feel like when it came to the building smashing, if you look at it, when when the creature is striking some of the buildings, it's taken out like a small hunk. I don't want to see that. I want to see entire <laughs> facades coming off of buildings and then the rest of it crumbling within. Uh, you know, getting tangled up in power lines. Like I can I can get that kind of thing, but I still want to see a larger scale destruction and we just don't get that with this and i if 
I think there's a scene where, like you said, it's trying to tip over a ferry, and it kind of takes it a little bit to tip this ferry over. And, I, and it, at times, I'm like, "Come on, buddy, you're you're almost there. Keep going." Like <laughs> you want to see more of it, but like you said, I think it's just an issue of uh, lack of budget or maybe even follow through. Like they got to a point, and they're like, "You know what? I can't do this anymore. I'm happy with where it is. Let's just move on to another scene." Or maybe there was an intention to finish it up and they never did. I don't know, but I think that given a little more time, a little more money, I think they could have went the extra steps it needed. Well, I think you wanted to talk about the ending of this movie. So, yeah, was this, what was it that struck you about the ending of this movie? It really brought a smile to my face uh, when everything is said and done and they're kind of finishing up and they turn on the radio and all of a sudden, hey, we're getting reports. The same thing's happening on the eastern coast of America. And they kind of look at each other and the film ends. And But for me, there was a bit of a smile. I was like, okay, like that's kind of – it's cute in a way that they're going to try to you know, maybe take a sequel and put it in America. And now they're – you know, they're the two scientists can go off and do the same thing they just did here. And maybe we would get more background on the behemoth and maybe we'd see a little more back and forth between the two. So and maybe I'm just imagining that, too, that that's what would have happened. But the idea that there was a potential for a strong sequel or maybe something with a bit bigger of a budget, better effects was just kind of neat and how they would kind of tie it up like that. Like, is it over or is it over? Like. <laughs> It was just, it was fun. It was fun. <laughs> well, I, I, yeah, I mean, it's a bit of a cliche in these movies because, you know, no one's ever made a film where they don't want to leave the door open for a possible sequel. And, uh, yeah, mm -hmm. it, it's, it's almost uh, humorously gratuitous the way that they open the door for a potential sequel at the end of this movie. And, uh, I, I, I have to say, I, it did, it did make me smile as well because it was such a, a sort of obvious attempt at, uh, you know, hey, if this is a success, We've, we've left everything in place for a possible sequel. Behemoth 2. Okay, we are going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to be looking at some history-making exploding helicopter action. Hi, everyone. This is Tim Costa. I'm Hermano da Silva. And this is Walter Vinci. And together, we are the First Time Watchers Podcast. Each week, we choose a movie to review that none of us has seen. Watch it together. And then discuss... These movies could be new, or old, or on our list of shame. You can find us on iTunes by searching for the First Time Watchers podcast. As well as on Stitcher! And we love interacting with our listeners, so if you have any suggestions, send us a tweet. An email. Or post to our Facebook page. We'd love to hear from you. That's right, I mean, it's all about interaction. And talking about what we love, movies. And you don't have to worry about us going on and on about this and that and the other. And, oh, no, look, no, let's no, talk stop, about stop, this stop, minutiae shut up, here. Shut up, shut up, shut up, shut up. I wonder shut who up. the cat that can God watch. damn it, shut I up. I think that's enough. We're back, and now we're looking at the exploding helicopter action. This occurs fairly early in the film during an aerial search for the beast. A couple of expendable extras are in a Westland WS-51 Dragonfly. Our pilots locate and close in on the creature which uses its radioactive powers, which the film never actually specifies, to destroy the helicopter. One moment the aircraft is there, the next there's an intense white glow and a sudden shower of sparks. And poof, it's gone. So this is history, people, because this is the first helicopter that cinema audiences got to see explode on screen. So, Nick, what did you make of this chopper fireball action? 
I thought it was really neat. I thought it was a little inventive for its time, too, because rather than, like, this fiery crash, it just kind of, like you said, poof, explodes into, like, this stardust-like material, and then it's just gone, which I also think adds to a little bit of the mystery to the creature of, like, what are its powers and that kind of thing. But I thought it was I thought it was really cool and inventive, and I don't know if you were able to see this, but with the version I was watching, I don't know if it was – watching standard on a high definition television and and being able to see just a little bit more than I think you should. It looked as if they had a helicopter parked on like a soundstage and like a drop cloth and like backgrounds and everything. And it just kind of filmed it from a side angle exploding like a quick cut in and out. And it almost as if like, Hey, here's how he did it. Like a behind the scenes kind of thing. I thought that was really interesting like how to achieve it, and they just like were just a half second off of the effects to like really give it that wow. Well, I think maybe what you were uh, detecting there, Nick, was a uh, a bit of a cheat by the uh, director or the producers of this particular film, because uh, as I mentioned, we initially see one type of helicopter in this sequence, a WS-51 Dragonfly. But when we come back to see, you know, there's various sort of, you know, cutting to and froing in this scene. But the helicopter that we see briefly before it explodes is a completely different helicopter, which is a a WS-55 Whirlwind for you uh, helicopter junkies out there. And so I kind of think that that's what what you are picking up on there. And if you're aware of the... If you're aware of that and you're looking for it, it's very obvious that uh, it's actually a t- completely different helicopter that explodes at the end of uh, that sequence. Well, you got me. They they fooled me then because I didn't really notice that it was a separate one altogether. I think my attention attention was taken away when I realized, wait a second, this is on a stage and you can clearly tell there's claws and a backdrop. So they fooled me. Well, I didn't pick it up myself on the first viewing, but uh, yeah, once you know, once you're aware of it, it is it is very obvious that uh, there's two different uh, there's two different helicopters. If you look at the kind of the front, the sort of the glass bubble at the at the front of the of the uh, chopper is completely different on the two things. And once you notice that, it's very apparent that uh, that there is uh, two different helicopters in there, which is rather bizarre. I don't really know why they needed to do that. That does seem to be some sort of horrendous production error i really don't see why they couldn't have um, had some consistency consistency there and it does feel to me that this is quite an inauspicious first chopper fireball well they're they're breaking the mold they're setting the standard and obviously it's a very low bar that they're setting <laughs> but <laughs> but they're introducing this idea and they're saying hey you know have you ever seen this and then when it happens I think that's what sets the imagination in the viewers and aspiring filmmakers to go you know what I like this I'm gonna I'm gonna make it better and thus we go on and improve so I think it's a little seed that has been planted and watered and now it is growing and we are seeing you know the effects tenfold of it with the films of today you you put it so poetically nick i'm so glad you're here thank you so much sir (laughs) i mean and you've even talked me around because i i was a bit down on the fact that the uh the kind of the the reason of the detonation is unclear in this in this film but you've talked me around a bit that actually that adds to this adds to the the quality of the film that actually you know that this the, the behemoth has these mysterious powers and so you know why couldn't it make this helicopter explode 
you know, essentially evaporate in a shower of sparks. You know, why couldn't it do that? I, you know, I, I, I feel you're talking me round now to sort of making me feel a little bit warmer towards this, you know, history-making exploding helicopter. Sounds like you're just going to have to watch it again. I may watch that sequence again. I'm not. I'm not going to watch the whole film again. That's. I like uh, the hesitation. Yeah, I. I this is. This was my third go through with this movie. I really, I really don't feel the need to go back to this. You're movie. not going for four. Uh, I, you know, I might do if I met somebody who was a real exploding helicopter maniac, and I don't know okay. if if they were dangling some sort of big paycheck in front of me, and they said, you know what, Will, we're happy to you know employ you professionally to review um, exploding helicopter movies, but I've got to sit down and watch the very first one with you. I would, in those circumstances, watch this film again, but I think okay. unless it is in those unlikely circumstances, I'm not watching this movie again. Well, I hope one day I hit the lottery and I hit it big. <laughs> Keep buying those lottery tickets, Nick. Well, I think it is just about time to uh, wrap things up here. So, Nick, thanks for joining me again to review this film. So do you want to take a moment to uh, give a shout out to French Toast Sunday? Absolutely. FrenchToastSunday.com. You can find us there. We have the site with reviews and fun posts, the podcast as well. You can find that on the site or wherever you find your podcast. You can check us out on Twitter at FTS Tweets. I'm sure there's an Instagram account somewhere. And if you do a little bit of Googling, you can find that too. <laughs> well, this is a quick reminder from me to those of you who like to fill the void of your hollow lives by faffing around on social media because uh, Exploding Helicopter is on Facebook. We're on Instagram, Tumblr, Twitter, Letterboxd, and we've even got a website. I would say across all of those platforms, there's at least five solid minutes of distracting material. So go <laughs> seek it out, find it, and uh, yeah, as I say, fill that void in your lives. We'll be back soon, but until then, keep watching the skies for those exploding helicopters. This podcast is a proud member of the Lamb Podcasting Network. Find the network at largeassmovieblogs.com. Go right in, sir. Professor Bickford is already here. Thank you. Oh, nice to you. All right. Yes, sir. Hans. Sir. I had just been showing Professor Bickford our report on the Valkyria disaster. You visited the vessel too, I believe. Yes, sir. Uh, what did the commander give us a cause? Didn't state. Merely said what it wasn't. What's your idea, Steve? I'm afraid it's going to sound unbelievable. Everything about this affair is unbelievable. But it happened. I feel, Admiral, what we're facing is a marine animal of tremendous size and strength. You made him believe that a whale could have smashed through steel plates so high above the waterline? I didn't say a whale. Behemoth? That's as good a name as any for now. <laughs>